introduction to music. It was uh, listening. My mom was, uh, God bless her, she just passed away a couple of months ago. Um, was She was the music fountain in the family. Not She was, a, was not a musician. We're no musicians in my family. I don't know about it. She was the one the first person who put me in first contact with music when I was just a baby. I remember we were living in Florida and uh, she liked the Brubeck Quartet. Did take five, you know, da 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 And that was some of the first music that I heard was Joe Morello was playing drums. I didn't know at the time, I was just a kid. And um, she listened to Elvis, uh, the Everly Brothers, people like that, when I was growing up. And the Supremes, probably mostly radio stuff. She didn't have a lot of records, but it was mostly radio stuff. And that was my first, you know, first music. She brought music into my life, my mom, Ramona. Well, my first contact with drums, it was one of those really, well, I was just a kid, maybe six, five or six, possibly. Uh, and it wasn't a real kid, it was one of those stupid made up kids that made out of cardboard, you know, and had like a palm tree on the front, you know, that you'd see in all the toy, toy magazines. And it didn't last very long. I destroyed it, you know, straight away. And I'd been banging around on pots before that. And, uh, and then there was a long period of time, well, in my mind back then, you know, a year was forever. Now it's like 30 seconds, you know. But um, as time went by, that was my first time that I had any kind of thing with, with, with actual drums. I didn't even have real sticks. It was just little baby sticks that came with that kit. And it wasn't until years later that I actually um, got a snare drum and uh, a, book, a book of rudiments, you know, and some real sticks and started messing around. That was way later on. That was probably when I was 11 or 12. Well, the first time that I got together with so-called musicians was at that time when I was 13, maybe 12 or 13, playing with guys that I went to school with, you know, um, just banging around in the garage or wherever we could get away with it, you know. And there was a period of time where I switched from drums and wanted to, and, and, and because I found that rudiments really tedious and it was very challenging and the whole independence thing, trying to teach my left side to do one thing and my right hand to do something while my left foot was doing something else, my right foot was doing something else, and, and you know, and it got really, really tedious working my way through the rudiments. So I thought, oh, I'm going to try guitar. So I tried, I played guitar for a while and I really enjoyed it, but. After a year or so of that, I went back to the drums full time. Probably the first, uh, the first really cool, big time band that I heard was probably the Who. Yeah, when I was, however uh, old I was, but uh, yeah, with the Who, and uh, it was a whole British thing. It was the Who clothes. I think Herman's Hermits were on that bill. I think. Uh, may have been on that bill. It was like a British invasion kind of thing. So there were some really poppy bands on there and then the Who clothes and they were like, you know, they were like heavy duty because they were destroying everything, you know. And it was before they started distinguishing between like heavier bands and it was all the same genre, you know. Anybody that had long hair and played anything other than jazz or swing or big band, was it was, it was a rock band, you know. It was before they started pigeonholing everything, you know. Well, as time went by and played with more local bands and stuff, and I started, I started playing pretty early on original music with this trio, and it was a strange trio. The guitar player was Brooks Hubbard. He was a guitar player singer, and we had a keyboard player, and he played a C3 with bass pedals. That was a three-piece band, but it was guitar, keyboards, and drums.
um, and and the bass was covered by this keyboard player, and he played foot he played foot pedals, you know, with a C3, because B3s and C3s when they were just used in churches, you know, they come with a set of bass pedals, and it was really good. He was uh, a Juilliard or some, you know, he, he graduated. He was way over. He had to dumb down to play with us. He was way over skilled to be playing, you know, in a rock trio. It was so good, and so well, I was playing double, started playing double bass pretty close at the same time we would work out all these really cool patterns and he could play all those awesome patterns with double bass and still play all the keyboard stuff so it sounded really full it sounded like a real it sounded almost like four pieces and we, we were doing our own original music and we were living in New Orleans at the French Quarter that was kind of like a, a real mecca at the time the Almond Brothers were there Dr. John it was uh, Pink Floyd were hanging out there it was like it was a really cool thing going on I didn't at the time realize how cool it was you could go to the warehouse we would be the opening band at the warehouse and there the Blue Cheer would play the Young Rascals um, 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 Pink Floyd and the Almond Brothers closed that was one show one night it would go until like two in the morning. We opened up, and because we were living in New Orleans, you know, and that was really uh, that was a really fun time. And that was when I first started playing. I was 16, 17, you know, and it was during that period of time when I got the. It was in that band that some guy that worked with Black Oak heard me play and said that this band that just got signed to Atlantic needed a drummer. And so I gave him my name and number because even though I was really having a lot of fun, we couldn't get anywhere because our music was really weird. It was speed freak music, and we just played whatever we wanted to play. So we couldn't, we could, we'd have to go way down into Florida to get gigs and stuff. We couldn't get gigs where we lived in Mississippi and Louisiana and around in there. If we didn't play in the French Quarter, then we had to go way, you know, way out down in southern Florida. There were a few places we could play, and so it just got really frustrating because we ran out of places to play. And so I didn't. I was really happy musically, but this guy said, "Yeah, this band's so Black Elk. I'd never heard of them." No one had really at that time, but uh, I gave my name and a few weeks later I phoned and I flew to Memphis, auditioned, and got the gig. And, and it was downhill from there for about five and a half years. <coughs> you were around, kind of. <coughs> I went through uh, some, you know, unsavory dealings with management that was involved with that band and got tied up. And, and it, was my, it was my bad, really, because I was using it as a stepping stone, you know, to get get known and, and so I paid a real high price for that you know got taught, even though I was an equal owner and everything and it was a very successful band I didn't care about any of that I just wanted to play with people that I wanted to play with and I was very unhappy you know and I tried to leave once and they threatened to break my arms and not the guys in the band but this manager guy and I said if you don't play here you're not gonna play anywhere and it scared the hell out of me because I'd never, you know, I was still really young at that time, you know. I started with him when I was 17 and a half, you know, shy of my 18th birthday. So I didn't really know um, that it was that way. It's really not that way, but, you know, when somebody, if you're not happy, people say, oh, well, you know, thanks, thanks, you know, go be on your way. But no, it wasn't that way there. And then from that, I went through a whole year, a little over a year with lawsuits. And the first gig that I got after that was when I moved, went to Chicago and put this little band together called The Thumbs. It was a really cool band. But uh, I couldn't sign anything because I was tied up. Capitol Records offered us a really good deal. Rupert Perry came out and heard the band, but they wanted me to sign a key member clause. And I couldn't do that because of what I was tied up in legally. Anyway, long story short, and that went on for about a year and a half. and. I learned a lot about the legal system and stuff like that, you know, lawyers and the whole thing. And that was the last manager I'd ever had. Um, and uh, uh, it was toward the end of that period I got a call from David Hemmings, not the actor, but a British manager, 
who I'd met when I was with Black Oak, and the first tour that I did, we were supporting Black Sabbath in Europe, and David Hemmings was the band's luggage guy. He carried their bags. I met him on an elevator with Ozzy and uh, Tony Iommi. The first people when I got to Glasgow, uh, we were playing the Apollo in Glasgow, and we were supporting Black Sabbath. It was the first time Black Oak had toured out of America. I'm trying to condense this. Anyway, um, he was worked for them as carrying their luggage. He was a luggage guy. Well, in the interim, through all those years, he started on economy management and was managing Judas Priest, Pat Travers, and a couple other bands, along with his partner Dawson was his name. Well, from that contact with David Hemmings then, and Pat Travers had heard me play, Black Oak supported Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Toronto, where was Pat from? He was from somewhere in Canada, and Pat was at that gig and heard me play, and then Pat mentioned my name and David who, to D David Hemmings. David Hemmings was then his manager. David Hemmings kind of gets in touch with me, and I, I flew to New York and you know got together and we jammed out and boom started with Travers, and that went for I don't know four years maybe. Pat through you know some pretty good and he was right on the precipice of getting getting really big and you know. People were doing things they shouldn't have been doing, you know, including Mr. Hemmings, and you couldn't sit down with anyone and have any kind of really constructive business meeting about going on and taking the next step. So I left, and Pat Thrall left at the same time. And from that, I moved to England. I lived in England for about a year and a half, two years, and that's when I started working with Gary Moore. That's when I met Randy. Randy was had just come over and just started working with Ozzy. I was working with Gary, who was signed to Jet. It was the same label that Ozzy was signed to. It was owned by Don Arden, who, God rest his soul, is gone now. Sharon Osborne's father. And so that that's how it all came. And I was rehearsing with Gary and working with Gary when. Ozzy, I mean Bob Daisley and Randy came to a rehearsal because Randy wanted to meet Gary. He was a huge Gary Moore fan, and that's when I when I met Randy when he first came to England. He was living there at the time, same time period that John Bonham passed away. It was during that same time period, and we did a, did a couple of records with Gary, a couple of tours with Gary, and then was living in England. And I got hooked up, and I remember Don Arden called me to his office and planned something for me. He said. Uh, he said, listen to this, Tom, I want to know if you could uh, put some drums on this for me. And I said, sure, Don, what is it? And he played it, and it was outtakes from Blizzard and Diary of Madman, the sessions. And I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking, I'm listening to it in headphones, and I'm thinking, I play. he said, he wanted me to put overdub the drums on it. And I said, well, why, Don, would you want me to do that? I said, that sounds really good, you don't want to mess with that. He said, well, do you think you could play it better? Uh, and I said, what, you mean just from a drummer's point of view? I said, well, I'd like to think I could do it better, but it's not going to make that music any better. That's really special, some serious stuff that's going on there. I didn't know what I was really listening to, you know. Well, it ended up being those two albums. And he was trying then, they were trying then, to get the drums and the bass off of those records then before they were even really officially released. Sharon, at that time, just worked in the office at Jet for her father. and. Um, I remember saying, meeting her at a party at Rod McSween's, who's an agent. You probably you know Rod. You know all these people. And when um, when I was living in England, Rod was he was working for uh, the agency that he now owned, that Don Arden owned. He now owns it, but uh, it was all kind of collected to get connected together. And just small, same names are still in the business. Very few of them, you know. But and then uh, from Ozzy, it went until. Uh, until Randy was killed in the crash, you know, and I was there and trying to audition and find guitar players. And Brad Gillis, through my connection with Pat Thrall, looked me up with Brad Gillis. He came out and, and he was good enough to play all the parts and willing to faithfully replicate Randy's parts. So he, you know, kind of saw us through that first 
you know, transition because Brett Sharon wanted to try to maintain some momentum, you know, that was important. We had Madison Square Garden coming up, some big gigs, and Bernie Torme came in originally, and poor guy, there was so much pressure on him, and he just was just a nervous wreck. We did Madison Square Garden with Bernie, and I felt so sorry for him because it was just too much too soon, you know, too much information, and too, too big a feel, unfillable shoes. I believe some people are just, they're not, you know, people aren't just interchangeable, especially from an artistic point of view, and Randy happened to be one of those, you know. But it was through that time when Randy passed, was Randy was killed, I was trying to find a replacement, you know, and found um, in that, through that, after Brad fulfilled those commit, those touring commitments, and we were full-time trying to find a guitar player, and that's when I ran across Jay, Jay, E. Lee in L.A., flew out and auditioned him, and he got the gig, you know, it was with him, George, George Lynch's name was on the, you know, was in the top two or three of that list, you know, and um, Jake got the gig, and, and, um, uh, and then, uh, Ozzy was going through some throws, you know, he's trying to get off the booze, and from that transition I went to, from that to Whitesnake. Uh, when I left Ozzy, Rudy had just left Quiet Riot, um, uh, uh, yeah, and we got together in LA and we're trying to put something together, so we were looking for a guitar player and a singer. Bass player, drummer, looking for a guitar player, singer, and we were flying guys in from all over the place, we were mates for almost a year. You know, auditioning guitarists and si and singers, and and then John Sykes, a good buddy of mine, and he kept saying, "Well, come down, you know, I have to talk with DC," and 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 so I went down and, and talked with with David and John. We went out to dinner, you know, and talked about the White Snake thing, and I had a commitment with Rudy, but they were not particularly, I don't know, Rudy's, but they weren't that enthusiastic. They were just wanting my services at that time, and I was trying to faithful be faithful to my commitment, you know. And so that's when he went out. Anyway, ended up going and, and hooking up with Ansley and, and, and doing finished and doing the record. Um, and um, shortly after that is when they were looking, still looking for a rhythm section. Well, David at that point was looking for an entire band because all of a sudden Sykes, Ainsley, all those guys are out of the picture now. And so um, we got the singer, and David got the bass player, the rhythm section. He was looking for, and then Adrian and Vivian came on board, and that brings us up to the '87 album. And uh, of course, then it was the MTV, and there were so many things that were dovetailing. You were there in that period. There were so many things that were responsible for the just the huge hugeness of that '87 record. Apart from the fact that it's an iconic album, it just kind of dovetailed with a with an era of MTV and huge, massive. The the charts were were dominated by all rock bands. It wasn't you know, rap or, 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 it was all, you know, look at the top five, Aerosmith would be there, White Snake, you know, a couple of other bands would be there, you know, Rage Against Your Machine, it was just really amazing, ACDC, you know, it was amazing how what the charts were filled with at the time, the top ten, it's so completely different now, so there were so many things that were detailing, of dovetailing, that, that uh, culminated in, you know, the massive success and appeal of White Snake at that particular time. It wasn't just us and, you know, that album and stuff. So there were a lot of things that, that, that were party to that level of success, playing five nights in every city. And, you know, we were out for a year and a half that first that first tour, you know, for, for out for 18 months, you know. And that just doesn't happen anymore, you know. And with MTV, and it was almost like being a film star. Everybody knew you were in town. They knew what you looked like. It was, you know, it was just really crazy. It was fun to be a part of that, you know. And um, and thankfully, White Snake has uh, enough substance and there's enough musical integrity that's been that's been maintained. Because David has always been the common 
He's always been a thumbprint, you know, and he's always been there with all the personnel changes and this, that, and the other, you know, that's happened. He's he's the you know, he's the X factor, you know, and so because of the groundwork that's been laid from a stylistic point of view, it's 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 progressive blues rock that's kind of timeless, you know, not to a degree that it maybe Led Zeppelin is, you know, that's a whole other stratosphere, you know. And I wouldn't dare compare it to that, but it's not too far away from that. There's, there's the music itself. It doesn't lend itself to be still so trendy. You get a, a White Snake fan; they, they tend to grow with you instead of away from you, which is really the antithesis of most rock band fans. You know, they're, they're, the power band is just why they outgrow you and go to do something else. You know, but we've been able to keep a pretty good, um, you know, foothold and manage to still be out here and somewhat viable still to, to this day and I'm really thankful and blessed to, to still be a part of that.